get right into it. I feel the Lord saying, let's just get into the word right now this morning. And so uh, as you're in Mark 12, uh, just kind of remember where we were last week. Okay, Jesus kind of gave us lessons from the fig tree. He gave us lessons from the temple, right? There's a lot of discussion about who had the authority to do the things that Jesus was doing. When he came in, when he rode into Jerusalem triumphantly and then came into the temple and cleared it out, cleaned house basically because running everybody out that was misusing God's house to sell things and to take advantage of people and to be deceitful. And the, the question of authority came up and Jesus used the lesson from the, the fig tree and that conversation he had with the Pharisees about what authority he had to do the things that he did and and basically what we talked about last week and how we wrapped that up in our life was it, became, it came down to faith. It came down to the importance of prayer and forgiveness and who we are in Jesus Christ and who we say that we follow. And so we're going to continue on with that, that course of teaching this morning. So let's read together. We're going to read Mark 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 all together. And then we'll, we'll jump into it and break it down. But read with me. Starting in verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head, treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read in the scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. With that, let's pray one more time. Father, as we get into your word now, Lord, we need to hear from you. Lord, by your spirit, would you speak to our hearts and our minds? Would what we read just now, Father God, and what we're going to go through now, Lord God, just speak to our heart and our mind. Continue to transform us. Continue to speak to us. Continue to make this word applicable to our life here and now. So we don't walk away with just another story in our pocket or another parable learned, but the application and truth of you, Jesus, and your word and how it pertains to us. So, Father, we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So right off the bat, Jesus began to speak to them in parables. So what I need to do really quick is take us all the way back to chapter 4. You guys remember in chapter 4, we kind of went through a series of parables. We went through a series of stories, and we had to define that term parable, Right? to really make it understandable. And what we talked about back then is you take the term similitude or allegory or maybe the, the, the general definition of a parable, which is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, 
right? It's kind of how we define what a parable is. But, but we took it a little step further and said that these are more than just stories. Their, their application to our life, they get to the heart of everything we believe and who we are in Christ. So that when we hear these stories, they're not just a story. They're designed to penetrate the heart of those who hear them. And in so doing, they are designed to therefore bring about a response. So here Jesus is once again telling a parable. So in the parable today, he talks about a vineyard. And it becomes very clear. Now what I love about this parable, as opposed to the many others, is that he had to separately with his disciples, go and explain again what the parables meant because there's a lot of misunderstanding, kind of a lot of clouded understanding as to what he was really talking about. But if we read through this parable now and everything that we've been discussing about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, this one is pretty clear. It's going to be very, very clear, especially to those that are listening. And I want it to be clear to us today. So again, just to break it down, he tells them of a man that planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a pit for a wine press, and built a tower. So this man who represents God. And if you're a note taker, you can maybe take these notes or or write them down in the, 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 uh, what do you call those things on the side of your Bibles? Margins, thank you. Hello. I didn't put margins in my notes, so I I missed the term. but, But the man that owns the vineyard is God. Okay, but you can see in the very quick description He takes the time to clear the land. He puts a hedge of protection around it, whether that was rocks or a fence or whatever it might be, because what he was going to do with that land was special, and he wanted to protect it. And and we know what he's going to do with the land. He builds a wine press. He digs into the ground, and he also builds a tower. And maybe that tower was used to maybe cultivate the, the wine, or it was maybe used as a tower for protection, as a lookout. Whatever it might be, this land was his. And he set servants over that land. And again, for your margins, the servants or the tenants, in this case, the tenants of the land are those in authority or ruling over Israel. The vineyard is Israel. For our case, it could be the kingdom of God. It goes hand in hand. And so he sets tenants, those that are going to work the land, oversee the land. He sets it up, prepares it, and then he goes away, leaving it in their care. And as we move on in the story, what we we come to see is that the time is right, that the owner knew, God knew that the fruit was going to be ready. And so he would send some of his representatives or his servants to go and collect the fruit. But what happened when the servants arrived? They were beaten, they were mocked, or they were killed. So who are these servants, who are these representatives that the owner of the vineyard or God is sending to Israel it's his prophets his messengers the judges the people that God had specifically called to go and give a word to his people in his land of to bring them back to the truth of who he was because Israel was starting to stray Israel was starting to go their own way taking their eyes off of God and we read that throughout scripture all the way up until the the present day of where we're at in the time of Christ. So here Jesus is telling them this parable about themselves. Now, this is not clouded in any misunderstanding. It's very clear because in Scripture, throughout Scripture, Israel is defined as a vine or vineyard. 
We read that in Jeremiah 2, verse 21. It says, Yet I planted a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Now, remember, he's talking to the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, all these that should what? Should know the scripture. So when, when Jesus is here talking about a vineyard, that should resonate with them. We also read in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and this should sound pretty familiar to what we just read. Isaiah 5, 1 and 2 says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So some would say, actually, that what we just read in Isaiah chapter 5 is the beginning of the parable of what Jesus just told. And here now Jesus is fulfilling or finishing that story that Isaiah began to tell. Almost the same exact situation, right? So what may be the beginning of the story, Jesus is now going to finish it, both by story and by the example of his life. But Israel had turned. Had they kept their eyes on God, had they maintained their faith in God and everything that he had done for them, by, from going back to bringing them out of captivity from Egypt, bringing them into the promised land, giving them everything that they needed, and yet they turned their eyes away. They rebelled. They were degenerate. They were wild, as the, the, the terminology uses in Scripture. And so the story has to change. But as we just talked about, when the season came, so in other words, when the time was right, God would send his servants or send his prophets, send his messengers to give them a word from God. And I love the story of all the prophets and messengers and, and judges that God would send to his people to remind them of who they are and remind them of who he is, remind them of what he had done for them throughout their history. And if you read the story of these prophets, I love it because they were just average men that God called. Nothing special about them in who they were except they answered the call. One in particular that I just shared at uh, a student venture conference this past week, for some reason he resonates with me, and it's the prophet Amos. And if you read in, in Amos 1.1, it defines that he was just a, a sheep herder. And if you go to Amos chapter 7, it, he also had a, uh, maybe a second job. He was bivocational, let's say. He was also a tree farmer. You know, he was just a shepherd, he was just a tree farmer, and yet God said, I'm going to use you to give my word to the people of Israel. But that's how most of these people were. But when the time came, at the proper time, God would send his messengers. And what did the tenants of the land do to them? Very clearly put, said they would beat him and send him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. This is the story Jesus is telling of what Israel and their leadership had done to all the messengers, all the prophets that God had sent them throughout time. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, it says, Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. 
but they conspired against him. And by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. So here the prophet Zechariah is stoned to death for bringing a word from God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, says the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers. God didn't just send one, didn't just send two or three or a handful. He sent them time and time again, persistent in his love and his compassion so much for his people that he just kept sending messages of hope, of grace, of love, of salvation. And they just ignored and they mocked and they killed and they ran them off. So what we're seeing by this is, is not a judgmental God, but a God of compassion. A landowner full of grace. That time and time again, he was trying to get his message across to his people. It continues on to say that he sent them persistently to them by his messengers. And because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. The messengers and the prophets mocked, killed. And so as we move on in verses 6 through 9 of our story here today that Jesus is telling, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So again, the tenants, Israel's rulers, rejected the owner's son. We shouldn't have to stop and think about, hmm, I wonder who the, the son of the owner is. <laughs> it's Jesus, the one telling this story to them now. But if you read very carefully about what Jesus had just defined, what did he say? He said, the tenants said to the son, this is the error. And so what is Jesus telling them about themselves? They know who he is. They know this is the Messiah. This is the son of God. And yet they still reject him. They knew it was the son. And in the parable, they killed the son and threw him off the property, signifying, one, they didn't respect the owner. Two, they didn't listen to the son. And three, decided to try and usurp the control of the property and take it for themselves. Yes, it's a parable, but Jesus isn't mincing words, is he? He's being very clear about what's going on. Now, in verse 9, at the end of the parable, Jesus asks a question. And in our reading here in Mark 12, verse 9, it says, What will the owner of the vineyard do? Now, Jesus provides the answer, but what I want to do is take us to Matthew's account of the same story. And in Matthew's account in chapter 21, verse 41, Jesus asked the same question. But then it says in Matthew's account that the people, maybe even the Pharisees, answered him. And their answer was this. If the question was, what will the owner of the vineyard do? They answered him and said, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit of their season. They knew exactly what was going to happen. 
Why would the owner continue to allow this to happen? He would drive out those tenants he put over and give it to somebody who was going to do the right thing. They answered the question. But it still revealed their hearts as to where they were at. They knew it was Jesus. They knew who Jesus was. They witnessed his whole ministry. They knew what he could do, what he claimed to be. So in the heart of their hearts, they knew it was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. And still, they conspired against him. They hated him. And we're going to do everything they could to kill him and get rid of him, just like the parable said. So ultimately, what does this parable do? It serves as a kind of a fourth declaration of the rejection and death of Jesus, doesn't it? Remember not long ago in the, in the previous chapters, he revealed three times to his disciples that he would be handed over, he would be tried, he'd be crucified, put to death, and, but ultimately raised to life again on the third day. And so here this parable, which is very clear, is almost kind of like a fourth declaration. But still it's a parable, so maybe it was hidden from some. But in verses 10 and 11 it says, Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus once again brings people back to Scripture. In fact, it's the same exact Scripture that was used when he triumphantly entered into Jerusalem. The same psalm, Psalm 118, was the same psalm that was used by the people to rejoice at the arrival of Jesus. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And just in the verses prior to that, Psalm 118, 22 and 23, Jesus speaks, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So in one point, happy, Hosanna, praise of salvation, cries of salvation for Jesus, he had arrived. And now in that same Psalm, the stone that would be rejected has now become the cornerstone. So in what could have been the capstone project, Jesus was going to be that capstone project, the final piece of what God was building throughout time. But yet he now had to become the foundation, the cornerstone upon which all others would be built because Israel rejected him as the capstone. And so he turned into the foundational stone. But this was so powerful that Jesus' disciples would carry on this, this message to all people that they would come in contact with. After Jesus had ascended and, and went to sit at the right hand of his Father in heaven, they would continue this story, this ministry, about who Jesus was and how they rejected him. In fact, not long after Jesus had ascended, Peter and John and the other disciples were in Jerusalem, and as they were walking into the, the temple area, there was a, a man who was lame from birth, couldn't walk. And every day people would bring him to the gate, and he would be able to beg for handouts, alms, money, whatever they could give him. Peter and John came upon him, and, and they asked him, What do you need? And so he stuck out his hand thinking he was going to get some, some money. And yet they said, we don't have gold or silver, but what we can give you is something far better. And in that moment, through the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, they spoke into this man's life and they raised him up, performed a great miracle, 
in the name of Jesus Christ. And because of that, they were arrested. And in Acts chapter 4, they're brought before the council. They're brought before the Pharisees and scribes and elders to answer for the reason why they're still continuing to, to speak in the name of Jesus. And before the council, in their arrest, they use the words and story that Jesus just defined about himself. We read that in Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Powerful words. Peter speaks, let it be known to all of you. Again, he's speaking to the, the leadership, the tenants of Israel. He says, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So what Jesus spoke to the Pharisees prior to his death resonated enough with Peter to use those same words against the Pharisees in their trial. That you know what, you can imprison us, you can put us to death, but it is still the fact of the matter, the truth that you rejected the stone, you rejected Jesus. You sent him to be crucified. But it's by his name that this man is alive and well today. Again, Peter would mention in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, as you come to him, speaking of Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. See how this resonates with his disciples? Using it time and again, but Jesus being referred to as that stone, that foundation. You know, and again, I... I'll apologize, but really in my heart, I don't apologize. It made me think of a structure in my historical uh, teaching days of traveling to Washington, D.C. time and again. The, the, the structure that stands at the, the center point of Washington, D.C., that in fact there is a law that states on the books today that no building within Washington, D.C. can be built higher than this structure. And that's the Washington Monument. You know, the Washington Monument stands 555 feet. And the capstone of that monument at the very top, put there by its builders, inscribed on that stone dedicated to Washington, but inscribed to so much more, reads the words, Laus Deo. And in Latin, what does that mean? Glory to God. So the capstone of the greatest monument in our nation's capital is declaring glory to God. But yet, for that monument to stand today, what did it have to be built on? Solid foundation. That that freestanding mason project that is so amazing to look at, that first stone that was laid had to be perfect, didn't it? Because every other stone built on that monument that reaches 555 feet 
was going to be established on that initial stone, that cornerstone, that in most monuments or buildings or whatever in Washington, D.C., the cornerstone is a symbol, isn't it, of that building? And typically within each of the cornerstones and, and monuments and memorials and buildings in D.C., they've dedicated that entire building or monument. And the cornerstone usually has inscribed something on it. And for a lot of the cornerstones in D.C., a lot of them are inscribed with Scripture. And a lot of them have things put inside the cornerstone. And in a few monuments and memorials and buildings in Washington, D.C., I'm going to give you one guess as to what people would put inside the cornerstone prior to building the rest of the building or monument. Go ahead. The Word of God. The Bible. So whether it's the foundational cornerstone upon which everything else is built, or that capstone, it brings glory and honor to Jesus Christ. And that is what is being said about Jesus here. That whether he's the capstone or whether he's the foundational stone, it doesn't matter because all things will be built upon Jesus Christ. And in the end, all glory to God. Amen? Are you guys following me? That's what Jesus is saying about himself. Everything, all of life hinges on Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We're part of that structure, you guys. We're part of that building. The foundational piece in Jesus Christ and everything else that the apostles and prophets had built upon Jesus Christ, we are now a part of that structure. Last week we said, do you not know that your body is a temple to the Lord? So collectively we are being built into that structure of Jesus Christ, that foundational, that, that temple of God. And then individually we are the temple of God. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Everything hinges on Jesus. And in the very end of this wonderful book that we read in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. What is he saying about himself? Everything began with me and everything will end with me. And everything in between is me. Everything is built upon Jesus Christ. Creation itself, John 1, 3 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And nothing was created except through Him. Jesus Christ was there at the beginning. All of creation was done through Jesus Christ. And here in the end, when He gathers His family, us, together, at the perfect time of God, we will be caught up with Him in the clouds. And if that's the case, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Everything hinges on the life of Jesus Christ. 
And to wrap up our story in verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they're right. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They knew what he was getting at. They knew who he was talking about, both them and himself. But they left him and went away. You know, if you read this story in, in three of the Gospels, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke ends this parable, this story, this section of his Gospel with a verse that I found so powerful. And I want to read that right now. We'll bring this to a close in Luke chapter 20, verse 18. It's not included in Mark's account, but it's included in Luke's. Luke 20, verse 18 says, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So whether you come to Christ in the right way, in faith, in grace, you're going to be broken. It says everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces. What's going to be broken? Your pride. Your envy. Your lust. Anything else that is of you and not of Christ will be broken. Your bondage to sin, the chains that are enslaving you to sin, will be broken when you fall on Jesus Christ. However, like the Pharisees, if you decide to reject Jesus Christ, want nothing to do with him, then that same stone will fall on you. But it will crush you. So it's a powerful way to end this segment, and Jesus is very clear. He's not mincing words. There's no question as to what was being said. The Pharisees knew it, and obviously Jesus knew it. You might be familiar with the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, if you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. If Christ be rejected, hope is rejected. So this parable that Jesus told of, of God sending all his messengers and all his prophets and all his judges and everybody else to bring people back to an understanding of himself. Jesus is the last one. There's no more. That's it. You accept him or you reject him. Accept him and you'll fall on that stone in hope and you'll be broken down a little bit, but praise God for that. Have all that other stuff washed away by the blood of Jesus. But if you reject him, then hope is rejected. So how does this relate to us today? You know, you might be here, you say, oh, I'm, I've accepted Jesus, so I'm good. I don't have to worry about anything. That's a good place to be. It is. It's a good place to be. There's no place I would rather be. That's what we just sang, right? It's where we need to be. But it's still a call to repentance. It's still a call to prayer. It's still a call to forgiveness. It's still a call to grace. It's still a call to live the life that you need to be because as a representative of Jesus here in our life, our agenda, our goal is to bring others into a 
relationship with Jesus. So we still have to maintain a life that's worthy of his calling. That again, when people look at us and come to us, they can see Jesus. But if you're here and, or you're watching or listening and you've been rejecting the call, you've been rejecting Jesus, then don't let it be your last hope. Don't let hope fade away. It's a call to fall under the authority of Jesus Christ, Him and Him alone. You put your faith in no one else but Christ. Don't let Him be the stone that you reject. Your salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. As Peter would say, there is no other name by which you must be saved. That's why Jesus would say, He is the way, He is the truth, He is the life. No man comes to the Father except through Him. Accept Jesus today.